Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. You know, I always say every morning when I wake up, O'Toole, I wake up and I get out of bed and I say another day, another chance to excel, right? Hello. Hello. Um, I didn't. I didn't know that. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know that specific mantra. I know you have a lot of good I know, ones, but and that's the I like it. Okay. okay. And this time, I just want to say that after the wonderment of last week's podcast around wonder, and now this week, um, after we go through all of our other areas of interest, we're going to be doing three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. And I thought, wow, there's quite a juxtaposition between the positioning <laughs> of those two movies. As my British friends would say, indeed, Hollister. I know. (laughs) Sort of like climb every mountain. And then it's like, okay, we're going to go to the valley today. (laughs) So so that's forewarning. Those forewarned are are forewarned. Well, Hollister, I was wondering, last week you mentioned that it was the 25th anniversary of one of your favorite movies, The Bodyguard. But I didn't realize Thanksgiving Day marked the 75th anniversary of a famous movie that premiered in 1942. Do you know what movie it was? I have no idea, but I guess I could guess. 1942. Okay, here's your clue. You've never seen the movie. Sing it, Sam. Casablanca? Yes! Oh, I was going to say clue number two would be you must remember this. Wow. So I was reading a lot of trivia about the movie because it was celebrating its 75th birthday. Of all the actors receiving screen credit, besides Humphrey Bogart, there were only two other actors who were actually born in the U.S. I don't know where you come (laughs) up with this stuff or why you find it interesting. Well, no, I find it super interesting because they said at the time there were so many European refugees in Hollywood because it was filmed during the war years. Well, 42 people who could get out had gotten out, you know, so. And a lot of actors and people in Hollywood were over serving in the war. Like even Jimmy Stewart. And well, after 75 years, do you think it's time for me to watch it? I think it could be mm. time, Hollister. Well, it's funny yes. because this weekend, you know, Thanksgiving weekend, my, my daughter, about whom I'm not allowed to speak, uh, <laughs> on camera when I'm doing camera work or... I'm glad on, this is I'm not, yeah, she's not allowed, yeah, But if I were allowed to speak about her, we watch a lot of TV on Thanksgiving weekend. And I watched Pride and Prejudice and I just had no idea the amount of talent that was in there. Like, do you know who... Now, which version? I, well, I watched the um, 2006 version. Oh, with Kira Knightley? Yeah. Okay. Who, by the way, was nominated for an Academy Award. You know, you, you like Academy Awards. So she was nominated for Academy Award for her performance there. But um, guess who was in it besides her? Well, of course, her co-star. Uh- Matthew okay. McFadden. <laughs> That's helpful. Carrie Mulligan. Oh, a very, very talented actress. Okay, you would not even recognize her. I'm. Sh- I kept looking at her, thinking, "Where do I know her? Where do I know her?" She plays the silliest of the sisters, like silly youngest of the sisters, and all I could think of is, you know, they cast that film so very well because. There's also, who else is in that film that you like well, very much? playing the other sister, Jane, Rosamund Pike, exactly. was in it. By the and way, I think that was one of her first performances, too. These were not well-known actors at the time. Well, Rosamund Pike and Carrie Mulligan, they were both in the film and education together. They right. were both terrific in that. And Donald Sutherland and Brenda Blethyn played the parents. I know. You know... I, I, it's it, You know, when you're watching it and you're watching this talent, it's like... 
Oh my gosh, you know, so early they were recognized there, but a really great movie, by the way, around the holiday times, especially when we're going to be taking you to some some serious depressing stuff today. But remember how they changed the ending for American audiences? Uh, What's the ending? Why? What's the ending? I've never seen the European one, but they thought Americans needed something, I think, more on the nose and happier. I would love to see the European ending. It wasn't an unhappy ending. I know. That's why I'm curious what the European ending looks like. Did you ever read the book? I did. So so then you know the ending. No, but I mean in the movie version. Oh, did they there's change? Two different, yeah, oh. there's two different movie endings. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. What's the movie ending in the European version? Well, this is my point. I've never seen it. Oh. So I would love to see the European <laughs> okay. version. I don't, I don't know. I can just tell you. Well, I thought the ending could have been better. I thought it was sort of silly to tell you the truth. And not well, at all no. the way I would imagine they speak to each other. So I didn't love the ending, but I loved everything leading up to it. That's for sure. In the American version, don't they kiss in the rain? Is it raining or am I confusing this with four weddings? It's misty because it's early morning and there's much dew around, much dew. Well, speaking of books to screen adaptations, we were talking about the remake of the movie version of Murder on the Orient Express. Which, by the way, a number of my friends have seen and they like. And I am going to go as soon as it gets nearby. I'm actually listening to the audiobook and guess who reads it? I can't imagine. Okay, it's an actor from Downton Abbey. It's a guy. Uh, I don't know. Dan Stevens. Oh, okay. He does a great job with all the different voices. To which the stranger, by name Monsieur Hercule Poirot, had made a fitting reply, including the phrase, But indeed, do I not remember that once you saved my life? Yeah, huh. that guy is a great audiobook He can do reader. female voices? Um, female doing to male is better for me in a book uh, tape like that than male to female. Well, he doesn't try to put his voice at a higher pitch or anything huh. like that, which can be a little creepy no, when you listen frankly, to a lot of audiobooks. No, it's like, uh, seriously, don't even go here, please. Yeah, But he exactly. does a lot of different accents, so hmm. Hercule Perros and the Americans Maybe and everybody I'll, I'll on the train. Absolutely. Yeah, he gives them each a different voice. And then we did hear from some people after last week's Wonder of Wonders. And um, I, I I had to laugh because Lalu, who often engages with us, she was like, Hollister, what you said about Julia Roberts, an actor whom I also don't uh, especially love, is exactly how I felt about Julianne Moore after Still Alice. I thought she was overrated, but now I'm a fan. It's so funny because if you go back to our Still Alice podcast, I felt the same way. I was never impressed with her work. Remember you were surprised at that? I was. And I have to say, I'm sure I said it in that podcast as well, but I've always liked Julianne Moore in her period pieces. So whenever the movie takes place in the 1950s, I'm all I just was never a fan. And then when she did Still Alice, I thought she did a bang up job. Um, And I was not a fan of Julia Roberts. And now I'm totally committed to her in whatever way she'd like. How did she become America's sweetheart? Uh, I don't know. It wasn't me. I think it was men. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't think it was women, to tell you the truth. But far be it from me to to damage her perfect reputation. Um, Although but, I have had pizza at Mystic Pizza, which was one of her first movies. Yeah, actually, didn't you and I stop there together? No, it probably felt like we did, but <laughs> I did post it on our Instagram We've driven page. by a number of times <laughs> going to New York, Boston, New York. But we yeah, only so. have pizza, apparently, for yeah. Thanksgiving dinners. You know. Okay, we have delayed long enough. It's time. <laughs> You think? Okay. Okay, I'm the one. Up, you, I'm the one who pushed you to go see three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, because I have heard everyone speaking about it and writing about it, and I pushed us to go. And 
I was mesmerized through the whole thing, although you're always in my head somewhere. And it's like... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I Just know. charge and me I'm rent. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm not sure. I let, you know, I'm going to let you lead off with how you felt about the premise of such a stark examination of people's feelings. I really liked the premise, and I saw a teaser a while ago, and I was intrigued by the little mini trailer. I'm not anti-vigilante. I <laughs> love the thought of a parent sticking up for their kids. You know, the theme of justice. I'm all for that. I can't say I've ever been a huge fan of Martin McDonough. I've seen his plays. I've seen his movies. Halster, I didn't make it through the whole movie. What, I made you left? about. I tried my hardest. I stayed for about an hour, and I thought this is leaving a stain on my soul, and I got up and left. Okay, okay. Okay, I, I'm, 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 I'm just shocked, but okay, let me just walk through. I've, we've got to take two minutes to explain the premise, and then I'm going to walk through why I think it's so brilliant. And you can just, you know, maybe you could get a glass of water. Or and some lavender spritz. I know. Okay, I'll lavender spritz you for sure. Thank you. Thank okay, you. so a woman's daughter is raped and murdered, and the police do not... Yeah, a year later, nothing's happened with it. And the the issue around it is that she probably, the police didn't communicate with her at all. So basically, she thought the police had done nothing. So she takes these three billboards, and she basically says, my daughter was murdered. They've not done anything. What do you have to say, Willoughby, who is the um, police chief? Willoughby, played by... The very busy actor, oh, Woody Harrelson. Oh, my God, right. We get to go I mean, he was just Lyndon B. Johnson in your review from two weeks ago. Well, to say nothing of he was also... In The Glass Castle. In this year, he's had three performances that are going to put him in contention and for award time. And for, this is from an actor who really nobody took too seriously until this year. But at any rate, so he, of course, is the police chief. And he goes and asks her to take it down and says to her, I'm dying of cancer. Okay. And she doesn't take them down. And what ensues is an examination of all kinds of different personalities and how they respond to the situation. I guess you're Angela Hayes' mother. That's right. I'm Angela Hayes' mother. Hayes, why did you put up these billboards? My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks to solve actual crime. What the hell is this? And um, we don't have to go into those details because if you want to see it, you'll go into them yourself. But that moment when he says, I'm dying of cancer, take it down. And she looks at him and says, no was one of those pivotal moments of which there are five in this movie, five pivotal moments where you expected a reaction that did not happen. I don't think those billboards is very fair. Time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. I expected her to say, oh my God, you're dying of cancer. I'm so sorry. I'll take it down or something. Even when she said Woody Harrelson, we all know. Like, it wasn't a surprise to her that he was ill. Right, but when he comes and looks at her in the face and says to her, take it down, the, her lack of empathy toward this dying man was at zero base. And I think it was sort of somewhat shocking. What's interesting to me is the flaws in humanity are in all of these characters, and yet you don't hate them. I mean, 
you know, she is not hateable, even though she turns on her son. I mean, the stuff she does to her son's outrageous. Mm-hmm. Seriously. The way the son speaks to her is outrageous. And again, that's our Lucas Hedges from Lady Bird and Manchester by the Sea. He's been yeah. busy this year as well. But I felt that it was, there was no nuance to this. There was no oh, subtlety. God. I thought to there me, was it so was, much subtlety. To me, it was just one nonstop abuse after another. So it's almost as though Martin McDonough, who, <laughs> with his stage plays, has been known for the genre of in-your-face theater, he lines up all the sacred cows that have ever been sacred at one <laughs> point or another, no matter how far you have to go back. So law and order, the Catholic Church, Easter, family, respecting one's parents' love. And he just shoots them all down. So everyone's either racist, sexist, homophobic. It's a moral morass. And I found that forced well, because it was true. There were many so characters in there that were with not. With no joy. And they paid See, for it. The woman of color who ran the store that she worked in, she was... I wish they had given her a larger part. For okay, the, the first guy, hour, the she guy might have who had owned the advertising agency that put up the billboards... I found his character the most interesting. The beginning, I had hope. The teaser, I had hope. You know, even when he just belabors the three billboards as he plays the elegiac music in the background, I thought, okay, maybe that's interesting. (laughs) Maybe it's a little slow. Frances McDormand pulls up in the first scene, and appropriately so, because she's obviously the star of the film. The look on her face was perfect, and I had high hopes. The debate she has with her son later about the billboards, I had high hope because I thought, oh, his is a very interesting point of view where the three billboards say raped while dying and still no arrests. How come Chief Willoughby? So when the son says to her, you know, raped while dying, really, mom, it's not enough. Now, every day on my way home, I have this in my face. I was very moved by that scene. But Then the language he puts into Lucas Hedges' mouth, everyone is so foul-mouthed that the characters didn't have unique voices, although none of them had the same accent, even though they were all supposed to be from the same small town. So what started out interesting, where she comes out and says to that guy you just mentioned who rents her the billboards... What's along what you can and cannot say on a billboard? I assume you can't say nothing defamatory and you can't say that right? Or anus? I think I'll be all right then. Every character in the movie spends the next two hours using every word you can ever put on a billboard. I don't know so when I'm, you. I don't know when you left, but I think I stayed an hour. Okay, then. Then again, I think if and I and I'm not saying you should have stayed, but I'm saying that you can't understand where the direction of everything was going if you walked out a half an hour before everything wraps up in a bit of a different way because. It was funny. I saw the director interviewed, and they and the first question the interviewer asked him was, um, "You appear to be very angry." <laughs> All this anger, man. It just begets greater anger. What you write is filled with anger, and he said, "Well, you know, I came up, I I came up in a very very poor neighborhood where things were very very tough, tough like I'm writing about in this particular piece." And I don't think I'm angry. I think I'm just working out the issues surrounding it. And so, and when he t- and then he went on to talk about the um, the deputy who was a racist, um, you know, bigoted, just really, really, really bad guy, right? Um, and he talked about his trajectory and his changing into who he becomes in the end. And 
that really everybody just wants to be acknowledged. And in the end, the chief of police leaves some letters behind and sort of brings out the best in humanity and so many of the people there. And they all took what is many Americans' point of view and experience and came out of it with a really interesting take. And it's it's almost like it starts and you think it's a whodunit. Okay, we have to find out who killed this girl. And I don't think it's, I think it's okay to say, we never find out who did it. We don't, we don't get that information. So what he does is he takes the characters through the change in releasing their anger so they can move on to be something more productive, more humane, and actually more intimate with other people because all of them are very much alone. The police chief's so alone in his death. She's so alone in her grief, which she's sharing with no one. Um, her son's alone. The, 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 the deputy who has to live with his mother because his father died and somebody had to do it, you know, he's all alone. And what you realize is when you get rid of all the anger and hatred inside a human being, then people can connect in a way where they're no longer alone. So I think it's very redemptive in its, in its actions toward the end. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. And I read this guy who said, I'm just going to put this out there. I think it's going to win for best film, you know, so. I wouldn't be surprised if the award season just eats this up. But the whole time I was sitting there, I was reminded of what Rosie O'Donnell said at the Bentonville Film Festival when we were there. And she said, you know, you've got to be really careful about the art you ingest. And when I'm thinking about every line in this movie, you know, the line about the midget and the N-word and the fat Mexican boy and the fat dentist before she drills the hole through a finger. And I know when you're going into a Martin McDonough piece, there's going to be amputations or bodily fluid squirting. You know, I was prepared for that. But to me, when the daughter gets to the, I hope I get raped, and the mother says, I hope you get raped too, the lines coming out of these people's mouths were so appalling. I thought, no, 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 I I can't ingest this art. And I thought about it a lot, Hollister, because I thought, okay, I've never walked out of a movie before that we had agreed to review. And then I thought about you not making it through La La Land and how it so irked you And you pointed out, and, you know, I agree that Hollywood loves these movies that are about Hollywood, you know, so it was about the making of movies. And you said it wasn't even the making of a good musical. You know, they could have had better dancers. And to me, this was one of those heavy-handed Hollywood tales that masquerades as a morality tale or it masquerades as being about redemption, when really I thought it was having the, the opposite effect on my soul. So the only reason I was trying to stay was to try to figure out who did it. I thought, well, if I can just hold on to that little yeah, bit. Well, you would have never gotten to that I answer. I never would have gotten. So I Googled it to see, well, you know, what did happen. And when I read some of the plot points about one character having half his face burned off and another going berserk and a suicide, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm really glad I didn't stay. Just seeing the pictures of the burned Well, I, yeah, I don't think you should much. have stayed, but I think it's hard then to also understand that there is a, a, a full circle that these characters go through that not only does it make them, does, re, does it redeem them in the beginning, but it also makes them point out to us, you know, prejudice and, and forgiveness. I mean, I think this was a film about forgiveness and, and I, I think everyone had people to forgive and everyone in the end does. And in the end, it doesn't matter who killed her. And so for me, I I thought it was beautifully done. But also when you have somebody like Frances McDormand, who 
I think is one of the great actors of our time, even, who can put together a performance like that. She was stellar in her approach to this woman and the coldness of this woman and not showing one crack through of the pain until, until toward the end. She doesn't smile once until the very, very end of the film. And then it's not really a smile, but a, an amazing performance on her part. And I, I, I couldn't help but think how interesting it was. I don't know if you saw this, but I'm, I'm hoping we can play here the clip of her describing that when they offered her the role, she didn't want to take it. Mm-hmm. And I love the feminist reasoning behind why she didn't want to take it. So we're going to play it here. Martin knew my work, not only from film, but also from the theater, which is really important part of my life and his. So that was a plus. But when I first read it, I loved it. I thought Mildred was amazing. I was very flattered. But then I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm too old. Because at the time he gave it to me, I was 58. I'm 60 now, so a couple years ago. And I'm really interested in playing my age. I like being my age. And I kind of have a political thing about it. So I, and I'm also from a working class background. And I was concerned that women from this socioeconomic strata did not wait till they were 38 to have their first child. And um, so we went back and forth and we debated that for quite a while. And then finally, my husband said, just shut up and do it. (laughs) To me, the feminist point of view of how she approaches those roles and her age and her gender and everything else, I just love that description of taking the role and her husband's coming. Didn't you think it was fabulous? Well, I do love that she loves playing her age and I love that she loves playing unvarnished characters and that she really is a character actress. And I love that Martin McDonough wrote the part for her. I love the fact that they're all involved in the stage. But for me, there are so many other reasons why I wouldn't have taken the role. So for example, I read one user comment where they said, well, if this was really trying to say something about racism, why wasn't one of the main characters a person of color? They said, why wasn't the lead Angela Bassett? And when I read that, I thought, well... Because a town like that doesn't have a person of color in a lead role. But why not? I mean, they could. I don't know how much time you spend in North Carolina, but towns like North Carolina... But that's well, where they filmed you know, it. But, you know, it's supposed to be about a town in Missouri, even though yeah, they all the, have different accents. a town like that, a small town like that, because they don't have a starring role in those towns. But they could and have so, a starring role in the movie, because a movie doesn't have to go off of sociological statistics on demographics. I don't, I don't. No, the same way that, you know, why couldn't it have been about her best friend? We could have seen the movie from her point of view. But when I read that user's comment, well, I thought... I don't understand why a person of color has to be brought into this. This well, is a if white they're issue. Trying to say, a... No, but if they're trying to say something about racism, or if they're trying to say, yeah, okay, but the racism from the get-go... about is 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 not people of color don't have this issue. He's walking us through the internal dynamics of the people who have these issues. And so it's not from that perspective. He's writing from his own perspective and you don't get, everybody's perspective doesn't have to be in every single film, you know? And so okay, no. I, I think that the people, he, the characters that he put in there, I don't think he needed a person of color in a major role to make no, this a great movie. If this movie was really supposed to be about racism. For example, when you first... It's not. Met, it's about forgiveness. Okay, I'm, I'm, okay Halster, I know I'm going to get through this sentence and this thought okay. that we left back with Angela Bassett. But when we first meet Sam Rockwell, the first thing Francis McDormand says, how's it going with torturing black people? Hey, f- What? Don't say what, Dixon, when she comes in calling you a f- 
there's not a line in this movie that I even feel comfortable quoting. That's okay, how bad the yeah. language is. Yeah. And I'm very glad you summed it up because there's barely a sentence we can excerpt from the trailer that iTunes won't censor us for. But if you're going to tell us about the characters, you could show us. It doesn't have to be that every character is white. And Angela Bassett has turned down many parts where she said if she, um, and I'm I'm totally paraphrasing here, but she said she has to feel good about the character on some level. To me, there would have been so many reasons to hesitate because this is one of these movies that I feel like it just tears at every fabric of our society. There's a lot of good friends of Willoughby in this town, Miss If the characters really were redeemed in any way, that arc would have been too sudden for me. That would have been just like shooting a plane straight up in the air. Well, the, I don't know. The I don't, G-force I think it's a would have been too much. hard to say that if you don't, if you're no, not, no, if you because, haven't seen the arc. Yeah. No, because I saw the first hour of pacing. So if it really could have turned itself around, and from the plot points I read and from the fact that you don't find out who did it, I would have left even more frustrated. But I think a, a movie that you could really compare this to is Wind River. And Wind River, again, it takes place on a Native American reservation, and yet the two leads are white. And that could have been a different movie. And yet still, that one to me was more satisfying in terms of themes like redemption, forgiveness, a girl's death, a parent's grief. That movie told that in a much more subtle way. So to me, this is something like when they call it a dark comedy, I never understood the humor in a show like Archie Bunker. So when I thought about your three E's, where you say you really want something to educate, entertain, or engage, it didn't reach me on any of your three E's. See, and I thought it was highly educational. And I think we learned a lot about racism and forgiveness. And I think we learned a lot about where it comes from and how it has no purpose and how you can overcome it. And by the way, in the end everybody did something terrible to someone else and they all forgave. And in the forgiveness was the redemption. And in the forgiveness was the moving to a different level of understanding so that it could never happen again. And I just, I just thought it was really, really well done. And I thought it was stark and I thought it was raw, but I thought it was necessary to have that rawness for us to really get the points. And I don't, I don't want things sugarcoated with, you know, Okay, and let's have an arc to how we fix the problem of racism in a in a movie. I mean, I just Nor don't. Nor do I. Well, I I don't know I don't know what your expectation could have been when it was really pointing out the the reasoning behind how people start to feel the way they feel. When you're powerless, you feel, and all of them were powerless in some way. You know, the 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 um, sheriff was powerless to overcome his illness. She was powerless to take back the last thing she said to her daughter. And she was powerless to find out who did this to her child. And as she said, I couldn't protect her, you know, the, and the deputy was, had to take care of this mother that was right out of the red dragon. I mean, it was one of those things where you thought, okay, no one has any power. And when you don't have power, you turn to terrible, the terrible demons inside you. And then all of a sudden, when you start to realize that maybe you do have some power in certain things, all those things can be overtaken. So I, I just thought it was exceptional, really exceptional. Well, see, I don't believe anyone is powerless. I don't think they were powerless in this movie. That was the part that I found gripping was the very beginning where she did something proactive. She put up the billboard. She put up the message. I was like, this is interesting. The more you keep a case in the public eye, the better your chances are getting it solved. And when I see 
But once again, it portrays people in a small town as being idiots, racist, etc., which we've spoken about before. This Hollywood bias towards small towns are filled with hateful people. I don't think it's saying small towns is filled with hateful people, but... This small town was. I don't understand. You know, I grew up in a rough neighborhood, but I don't understand the dynamics of these people. For example, when you said, well, it explains where racism comes from, I don't understand where all these people's hate came from. I don't understand how this mother started talking to her kids that way and the kids that way to uh, her mother. I think it comes from lack of... When you you end up being powerless, you know, I feel... But there's no power over anything, you know... um, you know, I, I think that's where it comes from. But but I think we are all filled with agency. And to me, that's a very, it's a dangerous message to say, okay, you know, if you're from Ebbing, Missouri, you're just destined to be a loathsome person. I don't think anybody said that in this film. Every character here was pretty loathsome. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I, again, I think the, the guy who owned the the ad agency, the woman she worked for, in the end... Which, you know, you didn't see, but the the deputy was certainly not a loathsome person, nor was she a loathsome person. And not only that, they all owned up to what was loathsome about themselves in the end and actually said it out loud even when they didn't have to. I mean, there was great movement and growth in, in in how this comes, in how it all comes together. And... You know, so I think I think it was exceptional. I thought it was interesting. They interviewed Frances McDormand, um, and they said, "Who did you channel?" And she said she channeled John Wayne to play the part. I and I saw thought that. that. Was, I thought that yeah, was a great. I, and even her quote about she was allowing her machismo to come forward, I thought was a very nice spin on it. I felt I know she's getting massive kudos for her acting, and she is a great actor. But I felt like here she had a recycled character going on. Obviously, it was written for her, and so you know I'm already picturing Frances McDormand in the role. But you know, so her son shaves the back of her head, and she dresses like an airline mechanic slash assassin. I didn't have a problem with that, but why was it that he said she ran a gift shop? I felt there were some incongruencies like that, which were. Very because odd. Because every to me. human has them. Every human has incongruencies that don't make that you don't quite add up. And actually not only did she work in a gift shop, I don't I don't think she actually ran it, but the way she touched the gifts in the gift shop was I think a, a very nuanced way of telling us that she was more than what we were seeing, and then what we were seeing came from a year of such grief that she just couldn't overcome it. I mean, I know that she was very proud that that was a real Molotov cocktail that she threw and that it looked like a good throw because she's also said that is not her thing. But to me, it it felt forced. So, for example, the spousal abuse and the husband coming in and Lucas Hedges with a knife to the throat. Well, you didn't see the Molotov cocktail. You didn't see that. I've seen it in clips from the movie. Again, in my detective work to try to figure out how this ended. Well, and then in, in, and then Sam Rockwell, who plays the d- deputy, mm-hmm. he said he channeled Barney Fife. And when I saw this in an interview, I thought, oh, my God, was Andy Griffith? Like, were they racist on Andy Griffith? Because Barney Fr- and then I realized... Barney Is that who Fife, Barney Fife was? Barney Fife was the, the deputy to Andy Griffith, who was the... Um, Towns sheriff Don Knotts played him and but I you know it's funny because I you know I was a kid I was seven years old watching um I was seven years old watching the Andy Griffith show and so I didn't know anything about racism 
But I thought that was interesting, and I'd like to go back and watch a couple of, of shows and see if if uh, if that's why he was channeling that. But I thought it was, you know, Barney Fife was sort of an idiot. He was sort of dumb. And I don't think that was a good person to channel because I don't think this deputy was dumb. I think he was just broken and drinking and, you know, because he couldn't stand the way he was feeling. And so... Um, so I thought the two of them channeling those two things I thought were really, really funny. We've had two official complaints about those billboards. From who? There's a lady with a funny eye. A lady with a funny eye? And then I wanted to say, like, Frances McDormand, okay, Mississippi burning, something's gotta give, and this? I mean, what reach she has to play so many different humans on the planet. Don't forget Miss Pettigrew for a day. Yeah, well, or Olive Kittredge, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, so you go, Francis. Now, also, the, one of my favorite songs ever written was in this film, and it's in so many films, and I just wanted to ask you, I don't know if you if you saw this part or not, but I wanted to ask you, why is Walk Away Renee? Just walk away, Renee. Why is that in so many movies? When I see the signs that point one way. Do you know the song? I don't. You don't know the song? It was, I think, 1970, maybe. Um, maybe earlier. I don't know. It's just in a lot of stuff. Now, have you ever seen any of Martin McDonough's plays? He's been nominated for four Tonys. I have not. Have you? I have. One of them was A Behanding in Spokane, and that actually starred Sam Rockwell from this film, as well as Zoe Kazan from The Big Sick. But most of his plays, except for The Pillow Man, they all take place in Ireland. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, The Lieutenant oh. of Inishmore, The Cripple oh. of Inishmon, The Beauty Queen of Lanann. Well, the last appeal I'm going to make for people to go see this film is that you know, the word grace is an important word to me. You know, I pick a word every year as my word, and one year I pick the word grace because, A, I'm not a graceful person, and grace sort of eludes me when I walk into a room, but I felt there was a lot of grace in this film. I felt that there was a lot of grace in Francis, and I felt there was a lot of graces in the deputy. I thought there was a lot of grace in the deputy's wife when she goes to see Francis. I just thought, wow, you know... Um, it's not physical grace you can see, but it's grace in execution of that which must be done. And so once you get past all the bad, sad, awful things, you know, I think, um, I think there was grace at the end of the day. And it was such a relief to see it. It was like the sun coming out after a terrible, terrible storm. Did they ever explain why Woody Harrelson's much younger wife, played by Abby Cornish, how they met because she had an English accent? No, they didn't go into any backstory about their romance, just that they clearly, you know, were were happy together. Um, but, you know, racism in Southern America and sexism in Southern America and family patterns across the entire country and shame and humiliation and how it affects people's behavior is something that I'm always going to be interested in exploring. And while it was painful to explore it, I thought, it certainly did it in a way that let me see that there's actually hope, um, actually hope at the end of the day. So I'm sorry you didn't like it. I am. I'll start. I mean, it went 
beyond that. It really, it was, it was tearing at my soul because I couldn't well, find grace in it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I literally needed three days to detox. There I was coming off of Thanksgiving and gratitude and wonder. And I honestly I had to drive with the roof down, head straight to the beach, <laughs> have some green juice. And then oh I came God. home and I just binge watched Sing Outlander trying to find oh. Oh something <laughs> where... Well, it's funny, we've talked about doing Outlander, but we felt like we couldn't do it if we only watched a few episodes or something. It's like in season six. So are we going to do it? Are we going to go go there? Well, I think Because you should. know me, I'll sit down and I'll probably spend a week calling in sick, you know? Oh my goodness. I wanted to see something where there was a character who stood up and was loyal and faithful and there was true love and romance and, you know, some kind of moral clarity. I mean, I'm all about so, nuance. I, I just, I can't handle a sledgehammer that's just a sledgehammer. Yeah. And well, to you, it was just a sledgehammer. But to me, there was nuance and it wasn't just, I mean, you know, different strokes for different folks. So um, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry you felt it that way. I really am. But we now should move to our list of six then, I guess, huh? This reporter, for one, hopes this finally puts an end to the strange saga of the three billboards outside. Then put an end to- so a little Francis is going to get all of us today, huh? Yes, our six favorite things about Frances McDormand and Hollister. I'm sure I told you, but I ran into her once on 10th Avenue in New York City, and no, it was <laughs> it was not my best moment. I was renting bikes with friends, and I was the first to get a bicycle, and I was there, good to go, in my bike helmet. And I look up, and a foot from me, Frances McDormand is staring right at me, and I thought, okay. <laughs> Not the accessory I would have donned for meeting a gifted actor. Well, I assume you didn't meet her because it's my understanding when people approach her and ask for pictures or uh, autographs, she doesn't do it. She's polite and she engages with them, but she really doesn't like to be approached. I was doing the opposite. I was recoiling from my own look, but there (laughs) she was because she, you know, she lives right there with Joel Cohn. Mm. She does. She does. So what's your first thing that you... Okay, I'm going to stick with her rooming situations. I love the fact that she once shared an apartment in the Bronx with Holly Hunter. And then they later moved into a house with the Cone brothers and some other Hollywood types. Back when she won her Oscar, they showed Holly Hunter cheering in the audience, but I didn't realize they were friends. The nominees for Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role are... Brenda Blethyn in Secrets and Lies... Diane Keaton in Marvin's Room. Frances McDormand in Fargo. Kristen Scott Thomas in The English Patient. Emily Watson in Breaking the Waves. The Oscar goes to... The Oscar goes to Frances McDormand in Fargo! Okay, I like that she doesn't do press junkets. And um, for most of the last 20 years since she won a Best Actress Academy Award, which, as you know, you know, to me it's sort of like, okay, something to hang your shirt on or something. But um, for playing Marge Gunderson, you know, who was so pregnant and cheerful police detective in Fargo, which I loved... Um, she's refused interviews. Her publicist explains that it's his job to politely tell people to go away. <laughs> I like that. I like that she feels that she can have her own, you know, she doesn't have to do interviews to, to be a star. And you hear so many 
Hollywood stars saying, well, you know, you have to do this. I have to do this. No, you don't. You know, there are many people who don't, and she's one of them. So I like that about her. And yet she has a publicist. That's interesting. <laughs> Wait, what's interesting about her having a publicist? Of course she has one. I mean, they have... You well, not everyone. Terry Hatcher doesn't have one. She does all her own. Yeah. Okay. So what's your... Yeah, she because she wants to talk to the public, but whatever. Okay. So what's your next one? I like that she likes playing her age. Huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In an industry not known for accepting real age. Yeah. The, mine sort of comes into that, but she... One of the things that she regrets is that she plays women who are attractive, but never beautiful, magnetic, you know, but sort of thorny. And as she notes, they're usually the supporting player in a man's story. So to this day, she's best known for Marge, but Marge had less screen time than people remember, you know. Um, Mostly it was about the murderous men who occupied most of, of Fargo. So... So, you know, she said that one of the reasons that this was so great, this this piece, was that um, that she wasn't playing second to a guy, you know. So I like that she recognizes um, that she plays the supporting player and she'd like to make changes. Wow. She talked about her looks and said that they disqualified her. She said, I was too young, too old, too fat, too thin, too tall, too short, too blonde, too dark. But at some point... She said to herself, they're going to need the other. And so she'd get really good at being the other. And she certainly did that, you know? Well, all of that dovetails into my last one. It's okay. my favorite Frances McDormand role. And she was the star. And it's Laurel Canyon, written and directed by Lisa oh Choladenko, who brought us The Kids Are All Right, where she played Christian Bale's mother and his girlfriend, played by Kate Beckinsale, they come to visit her in Laurel Canyon. She was terrific in that part. This is my son. (laughs) Sam. She is so embarrassing. She's fine. She's amusing. Oh, yeah. Do I need to see that? I don't think I've seen it. I think you would enjoy it. Okay, and then I like that she optioned the novel Olive Kittredge. Also directed by Lisa Toledenko. Yeah, and she did it before it won the Pulitzer, which I thought was sort of cool. Um, so when they're filming it, she kept saying, well, can't we take Olive out of this scene? And they're like, the name of the film is Olive <laughs> Kitteridge. You have to be the star of the film. She was very uncomfortable in that role. So I thought that was pretty funny, too. All right, so that, that's the end of our list. Okay, we're often told by people they love it when we argue, and I don't think we argued here as much as we came from very different points of view about this film. What do you think? I think we have found my La La Land for this year. <laughs> no, <laughs> because you know, I didn't have, have to recover. Let's put it that well, way. I'm going to have to brace myself for award season because you know this is going to be oh, up for is. a you lot know it is. of stuff. We're going to make it something really positive for next week. So look forward to that, everyone. So we're going to... We're going to go from this tragic thing that, of course, appealed to the person whose favorite movie is Silence of the Lambs. And, and meanwhile, um, little O'Toole is recovering. So recover well, my friend. Recover. Well, the pressure's on to find something <laughs> wonder-like I know, for next week. think of something really cool. All right. Over and out for this week.